How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study God's word, ready to focus and concentrate on his word, and Jack will be making whatever adjustments need to be made to the sound. It just doesn't sound right. Does it sound right to y'all? No, it does not sound right to them. So the pressure's on back in the back. They changed up everything in here a few weeks ago, and we're still trying to figure it out, so bear with us. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we have you to come to, that we have your word that reveals to us the nature of reality. We have your word that tells us about yourself. We have your word that informs us about your love, your character, your compassion, your grace for us. We have your word above all that tells us about our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and the new life that you give us at the instant of our faith alone in Christ alone. Father, now as we continue our study of what it means to live the abundant life, what it means to have a life established on the foundation of truth. We pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we would recognize the importance of assimilating all of this into our daily life, our daily thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we started a second part of what is in reality a basic series. I divided into two segments. The first section had 10 lessons, and this section will probably have 10 or 12 lessons in it. The first set focused on who God is, specifically focusing on the nature of truth. The truth by its very definition is exclusive. And so since truth is grounded in the thought of God, as the Bible expresses, that means there can only be one way. And that is that which is consistent to truth. There cannot be multiple truths, multiple realities. This in turn means that if we're going to have a path of salvation, whatever it is in any sort of religious thought, it has to be an exclusive path that is consistent with the character and revelation of God. All of that was to give us that framework for understanding that when the Bible makes the claim that Jesus is the one and only way, to have a relationship with God and the one and only way to salvation, that this is not some sort of arrogant claim, but is totally consistent within the framework of the definition of truth itself. In essence, those first ten lessons focused on the gospel. Now, moving into the second series, we're answering the question, after I trust Christ, then what? Now that I'm saved, what do I do? And so this is grounding itself in the nature of our Christian life. In Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, our Lord gives a parable to illustrate the point of the importance of our foundation. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? This is reminiscent of James' point to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. It's not about assimilating a lot of doctrine into your doctrinal notebooks, but letting the truth become full knowledge or epinosis truth in your soul that transforms the way you think and the way you live. So Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things which I say? If we are going to trust Christ as our Savior and if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is a path to follow subsequent to that in terms of Christian growth and maturity. He says in verse 47, Whoever comes to me, that's analogous to faith alone in Christ alone, trusting him as Savior, and hears my sayings, and that relates to post-salvation spiritual growth. Whoever comes to me, and anyone can come to him on the basis of simple faith, 
trusting him for salvation. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of ritual. It's simply a matter of trusting in him. And then hears his sayings and does them. That's not a work salvation. That is application of the principles of Scripture so that you can grow and mature as a believer. He says, I will show you whom he is like. In other words, let me give you a down-home illustration. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house. This may have particular resonance with those who have lived in the midst of the hurricane zone in the last few weeks. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. In contrast, verse 49, but he who heard and did nothing, that is the one who listens to the word and doesn't apply it, doesn't make it a part of their soul, doesn't use the word when the trials and tests of adversity come, is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, which against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's back up and look at the illustration in a little more detail. It's building a house. That is analogous to constructing our life. What is your philosophy of life? Everyone has one. You've either thought it through and it's consistent, or you haven't thought it through and you're inconsistent. But everybody has a philosophy of life. I remember saying that when I was back in seminary and someone said, oh, I'm not a philosopher. I said, well, you're not a very thoughtful philosopher, but everyone has a philosophy of life. Everyone has certain values. Everyone has a framework within which they make decisions, determine priorities, and address the issues of life and handle the problems and heartaches that come our way. Every man builds a house on something. There is a foundation to that. And the first man is one who digs deep. He's thoughtful. He plans. He has worked out the implications of what he is constructing. And he knows that what he is constructing has value, so he lays a foundation on that which has stability. And, of course, the only thing that has stability is the truth of God's Word. It is the Word of God that never changes because it is based upon the eternal, unchanging thinking of God. And he lays that foundation on the rock. He builds his life. He constructs his, his marriage, his family, everything that he does upon a foundation. He thinks about that foundation and as we as believers think about that foundation of truth, we work out the implications of what we believe so that every area of our life, from our life as an employee or an employer, our life as a husband, a father, a mother, uh, a wife, whatever it may be, our life in, in just our day-to-day -day life and decision-making is going to be built on that foundation of the truth of God's Word. And when the flood arose, the flood represents the adversities of life, whether they're minor adversities or major adversities, whether they're just the uh, nitpicking little uh, pains that we put up with every day, the irritations of living in a fallen world with fallen spouses and fallen children and fallen co-workers, and just the fact that we try to accomplish certain things, and we all run into it. We start up in the morning, we have our, our to-do list of ten things, and at the end of the day, we've been very busy. We've accomplished a lot, but at 5.30, we still have those ten things to accomplish, and we can't quite figure out what happened during the day, and it makes life very frustrating. We all experience that. That's reality. We, have, we live in a world that is fallen, and we constantly face those minor adversities. And then there are the major adversities where you go through periods of time where perhaps you're out of work. Perhaps you're dealing with major illnesses, either in your own life or in the life of a family member. You have elderly parents to take care of. Or you have children with debilitating health problems that you have to deal with. Whatever it is, we face these crises and it is the foundation that is the framework of Bible doctrine that provides us with the tools to use so that when in the midst of those adversities we want to react with anger, with bitterness, with resentment, we want to handle that problem through getting out there and um, 
doing something that we know involves overt sin, whatever it may be, rather than yielding to those internal pressures from our sin nature, what we do is we turn to Scripture. And as we have studied the Scripture, we know that you can boil down the basic skills for the Christian life into what I've defined as the ten stress busters, or we call them problem-solving devices, Whatever they may be, these are skills that we use, that the Holy Spirit uses. When we apply those doctrinal principles, the Holy Spirit then uses that to produce spiritual growth. So that when those adversities come, another term for that is testing, when those tests come, that rather than trying to handle the situation through a variety of sinful mechanics, we use the Word of God. And that's the picture of, and and when we don't, it's the picture of the last man, the one who's built his house on shifting sand. He hasn't thought about what he's doing. He hasn't applied doctrine. He's just using whatever psychobabble skills there are today. He's going to some church that teaches him that he's really wonderful and everything's positive and he let's all just do our best. Whatever it may be, find, founding his life on some human viewpoint system that may sound good, that may be logically consistent with his Darwinian presuppositions or his religious presuppositions or his uh, positive thinking presuppositions, whatever it may be. But when the pressures of life come, it doesn't ultimately work. It may work for a while. It may provide a certain level of benefit and peace. I heard one man say years ago that if you think that, uh, that, that stability or that fun or that, that pleasure in life comes from having a lot of women and a lot of, a lot of booze, then why don't you just take a vacation and go buy, get a lot of booze and get a lot of women? You're going to have a lot of fun for a while, but eventually it won't solve the problems and the issues in life. Unfortunately, most people in life never allow themselves to get pressed to the full conclusion of their assumptions about life. That's why you have to think about it, and that's why we are presenting this basic series, is to establish what those foundational principles are for the Christian life. We started with salvation. That's the starting point because it is the work of Christ on the cross that takes care of the greatest problem we face in life, which is sin. And it's on the foundation of Jesus Christ that we are able to handle all of the other issues in life. Moving beyond salvation, we recognize that at salvation all sins are forgiven, the believer is cleansed, and sin is no longer an issue between the believer and God. Last week we looked at that in terms of the doctrine of cleansing. That doctrine of cleansing is really the starting point for being able to grow in the Christian life. Whenever we try to handle the adversities of life by our own methods, our own efforts, our own strength, the Bible defines that as the flesh. And that's always always entails sin at some point. Now, at salvation, we're forgiven of all sins, and the Bible pictures that as a bath. Last time we saw that that was foreshadowed in the imagery of the Old Testament by the bath that the high priest took when he was inaugurated into office. At the point that the high priest entered into office, he took a bath. From head to toe, he's bathed. Subsequent to that bath, as he functions in his responsibilities as a high priest, going into the tabernacle, later the temple, he would have to wash his hands and his feet as a symbol of the fact that we do things and we go places where there is sin in our life and there must be cleansing, ongoing cleansing, when we, when we go forward in the Christian life. The ongoing cleansing is fulfilled in the principle of confession of sin in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says that if, and that's a third-class condition indicating that maybe we will, maybe we won't. The Greek expresses conditions, that is, if statements, hypothetical statements, four different ways. Actually, classical Greek had a fifth, but it's very rare. In fact, the fourth condition is only, it's debated, it's only used maybe one time in the New Testament. 
The third class condition is if we confess. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. It's an option for every believer. You, whenever you sin, you have the decision to make whether or not you'll confess your sin. The word for confession is homologeo. It means to admit or to acknowledge sin. It doesn't mean to have remorse. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for your sin. It doesn't mean to impress God with your with your guilt. It simply means as if you were standing in a courtroom to admit or acknowledge guilt. So it means to admit or acknowledge your sin. And the result is when we do this, if we do this, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And because of what is stated in that second part of the verse, we say that this is a promise. The promise is that if you do X, God will do Y. Every time you do X, God will do Y. That's a promise. When you confess your sins, God will, on the basis of His immutable character and on the basis of His perfect justice, He will forgive us our sins, not only the sins we remember and confess, but also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we studied last time, and that is the foundation for the Christian life. Because as long as we are out of fellowship, as long as we have uh, sin, the sin nature control in our life, then the Holy Spirit's ministry of growth, of spiritual advance, is shut down. Paul uses two different phrases to describe that, grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. And last time we looked at that whole doctrine of cleansing, ending up with the promise of 1 John 1.9. Learning to apply this is foundational to the Christian life. It's the first skill that we develop. Here's a chart, foundational spiritual skills. We'll just start off with the basic childhood skills, and that's all I'm going to cover in this basic series. I'll go through, we'll spend one Sunday on each of these five skills, and then we'll go into ministries related to our priesthood, and that lays the foundation in terms of basics for the Christian life. And the first one we studied last time dealt with confession and cleansing. All confession does is it puts us back into a position where we can grow in advance. It doesn't move us forward. It's uh, analogous to the ball player who's been out on the field playing and he messes up some way and the coach pulls him from the game and seats him on the bench. And he can't play. He can't do, go forward. He can't advance his career. He can't demonstrate anything about what he's learned. He's just benched and he's stagnant. And if he stays that way and he doesn't play, then eventually his skills would erode. And that happens in the Christian life. Confession simply gets you back in the game. It gets you back into action, but it doesn't carry you forward. There's no forward momentum associated with confession. It's simply a restoration to a position where God the Holy Spirit is going to be able to work in your life, take the doctrine in your soul, and use that as you apply it. He will use that in order to advance you uh, forward spiritually. And that's what we are going to look at uh, in our study this evening. We'll talk about two key ministries of God the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and walking by the Holy Spirit. Now, I prefer to emphasize the second of those two phrases, walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I use this phrase, by means of, is because it's a more precise way to communicate the instrumental nuance in the dative case of the noun spirit. It shows that the spirit is the instrument or the means of spiritual advance. It is the work of God the Holy Spirit that is the crucial element in spiritual advance. Not our decisions, not our uh, doctrine, but it is the Holy Spirit who produces the growth. Let me give you an illustration. Not that your volition... And not that your learning of doctrine isn't important. It's, it's, it's the tool that the Holy Spirit uses. Two illustrations. The first is that of eating, working out. Most of us, as 
we get a little older, begin to learn some things about nutrition. We learn some things about diet, and we all go through these times when we get a membership at a gym and we work out and we try to get back in shape like we were or hoped we were when we were younger. And so we can all understand this analogy. Anybody can eat. And I look around and I notice that everybody here seems to have demonstrated that they have excellent eating skills. And how much you eat, when you eat, and what you eat is all determined by your volition. You can decide, like I did yesterday when I was, it was after a funeral, and, and I, they had, it, typical of Texas, you go back to the, the, the family's home, and there's a spread of food, and there's some, some good food there and some salad, but then there's usually, if you're in Texas at least, there's a lot of really good desserts. And I'm telling you, there was this killer carrot cake that somebody brought from Fredericksburg, and it had a piece, and I love carrot cake, and this was probably one of the best pieces of carrot cake I ever had. So I decided just to have a small little bit of the salad and the meat and a large amount of carrot cake. I regretted that the rest of the afternoon. That's my decision. So we decide what we're going to put into our biological system. But once we chew that food up and we swallow it, our volition is no longer engaged. Once we swallow, everything goes into built-in metabolic processes designed by God that have nothing to do with our volition. How our body takes that food, whether it's salad, whether it's broccoli, whether it's uh, uh, meat, or whether it's just good old sugar, our body breaks that down into various chemical components, and then our bloodstream takes it and feeds it out into our muscle system. And I don't know about you all, but I sure can tell when I haven't had much sugar for a few days, I can feel it in my fingertips once I eat it. I mean, it's just down my legs and out my arms. I just feel my whole body tingle. It's, it's got to be a drug. That's all I, can, all I can decide. But that's all built in. It doesn't have anything to do with, what I, with, with my volition. But then... There, Volition kicks in again. Once your blood system transfers those nutrients out and feeds your, the cells in your body, we have a decision as to how we're going to utilize that energy. Are we going to use it to sit on the couch and watch, watch television, even if it is the Astros winning a ball game? Or are we going to use that energy to be disciplined on occasion and go to the gym or at least get up and walk around the block, walk a couple of miles, and work out so that there's positive production from the musculature in our bodies. And that's the analogy for the Christian life. God the Holy Spirit is analogous to that built-in metabolic process in your body. He's not related to your volition other than whether or not you're going to be walking by the Spirit or not, and that's related to your use of 1 John 1, 9. But you eat the Word. You take in the Word. This is why you have pictures in Scripture. Jeremiah says, take my, earth, my Word and eat, God says to Jeremiah. And so we take in the Word, and once we accept it by faith, swallow it by analogy, then God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes over He's the one who breaks down those components, stores it in the soul. He's the one who brings the doctrinal principles back to memory when we're involved in adversity and tests in order to apply those principles. And that's analogous to, well, now it's time to work out. Are we going to use our volition again that second time to apply the principles of Scripture under the teaching ministry and illuminating ministry and sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit and apply it. And as a result, just like going to the gym, you go to the gym and you work out, you, 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 or you go walking or get on the treadmill or whatever it is you do, you do that and then there are those metabolic processes built into the cell structure of your musculature that takes that and produces growth in your muscles and strengthens the muscles, and, and that's what happens. So, so in the process of spiritual growth, you have the teaching of the Word, and then we decide to accept it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He then takes that that we're learning, converts it into usable doctrine, and then we have to use our volition again 
to apply that doctrine on a day-to-day basis to the situations in life, and then God the Holy Spirit takes that and he produces growth. You can't make yourself grow any more than you can make yourself strong or or in physically good shape simply by saying, I want to do that. But you go through the processes, but what works in and through the process of learning the Word and applying the Word is God the Holy Spirit, and He's the one who produces the growth. That whole dynamic is what the Scripture refers to with the phrase, walking by means of the Spirit. And I'm convinced this is the umbrella term that describes various other components of the Spirit's work in our life in spiritual growth, such as the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, His teaching ministry, the illuminating ministry, are all facets of that overall term, walking by means of the Spirit. And that is the second skill we have to develop. Now, it was one of the first skills, other than eating, that you had to develop when you were growing up. For a while you crawled, and then finally you decided to stand up and grabbed hold of the chair, grabbed hold of your uh, parent's hand, or you grabbed hold of the wall and in a very unsteady way pulled yourself up on two feet, and then you tried to take a step and you fell down. And over a period of days and weeks, you finally mastered the process of putting one foot in front of another. And neither you nor I remember how much concentration or mental energy went into that at the time. But by the time we were approximately four or five years of age, we quit thinking about it. It was so automatic. We were running around like crazy and driving our parents nuts because we were mobile. And we didn't have to think about the process of walking anymore. But walking, especially when you have, like we have in Galatians uh, 5.16, is a command, and it involves thought. And in Galatians 5.16, we have our key verse on walking by the Spirit. And there we have the command. But to understand that, we have to understand it in the context of the book of Galatians. So let's stop a minute, focus. Well, there we go. Something happened. All of a sudden, my computer's acting up. Something's... Okay, foundational spiritual skills. Galatians 5.16, I say, Then walk by the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, to understand this passage... We have to go back to an earlier verse in Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 3 states, Are you so foolish, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, what happened to the Galatian church was that following Paul's time there when he taught them the gospel, there was a group of folks who were called Judaizers, who came in behind Paul and said, well, what Paul taught was fine as far as it goes, but he left out the fact that you have to obey the law. You have to get, the men have to get circumcised, and you have to fulfill the Mosaic law, and that's complete your salvation. And that's how you grow as a Christian, is by following the moral principles of the law. Now, what they were teaching was really a distortion of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was never given for either salvation or sanctification in the Old Testament. But after the uh, Babylonian captivity with the rise of various religious sects within within Judaism, they distorted the Mosaic Law into a uh, means for salvation and a means for the spiritual life. So these Judaizers came along and they uh, convinced them that there was another way to salvation. Now, let me back up a minute through these slides if I can get the computer to work right. Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, when that's corrected in translation, what Paul is saying, are you being foolish in this way? 
Are you foolish in this way? The first word in the Greek text is hutos, which indicates something that's coming up in this manner or in this way. Are you being foolish? It's the same word that you find at the beginning of John 3.16, where we translate it for God so loved the world. Literally, it's God loved the world in this manner, that he gave his unique son uh, to die on the cross for us. So here Paul is saying, are you foolish in this manner? Are you being foolish in this manner? After beginning by means of the Spirit, which is how we begin our Christian life, Titus 3.5 says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we begin by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who regenerates us. Are you so foolish in this way that after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now being matured by means of the flesh? So there is the contrast there that demonstrates that there is a battle now between the flesh, meaning our own efforts to save ourselves, to try to solve problems, surmount hardships on our own efforts, and trying to go forward by simply doing the right thing, by thinking that, oh, I can grow as a Christian if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I just avoid certain overt sins, that somehow spiritual growth is going to take place. But what Paul emphasizes in Galatians 3 is there's a contrast between living the Christian life on the basis of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Spirit and doing it from your own effort. He says this same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 which is in the context of a uh, contrast between being spiritual and being carnal. And in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 3, he says, For you are still carnal. That is, you, Corinthians, are still fleshly, literally. You are still operating on the flesh, on the sin nature. You're trying to live on the basis of your own ability instead of God's. And he says, For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving what? Like mere men, literally just like men. In other words, you're trying to live the Christian life on the basis of human effort alone, and you've left the Holy Spirit completely out of the equation. And the result is failure. That even when you start off trying to live the Christian life on the basis of morality, because you're living apart from God, it's a self-righteousness produced by the sin nature, and the end result is always going to be converted into overt sin or mental attitude sin or sins of the tongue. And that's what happened in Corinth, and that's what happened even in Paul's own life. He said in Romans 7, No matter how much I tried to obey the law, and remember the law is holy, just, and good, but no matter how much I've tried to obey it, I always ended up in sin. Every time, no matter how moral I tried to be, Sooner or later, I discovered there was, there was lust and covetousness that surfaced, and this is what told me that I was unable to fulfill the law at all on my own, and I needed to rely on God's grace. So when we try to live the Christian life on the basis of morality, on the basis of all these different systems, I remember years ago there was a book called The Disciplines of the Christian Life, and it's talking about Good things and important things, prayer, witnessing, giving, all these other things that are aspects of our priesthood, but they were making those the means of the Christian life, the means of spiritual growth. And what Paul is saying in Galatians is that that's just trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's no external power there, and the Christian life is a supernatural life that's got to be energized by a supernatural power. You just cannot do it on your own. And so we come to Galatians 5.16, to walk by means of the Spirit. And the result is you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we see that same contrast between spirit and flesh. And the command is to walk. It's a present active imperative. Now the reason I like to, and I believe that this is the main command, not the filling of the Spirit, is because this is an active voice imperative. If you look at the Greek of Ephesians 5.18 where it says to be filled by means of the Spirit, the command to be filled is a present 
passive imperative. Now, the difference is that in an active voice verb, the subject performs the action. In a passive voice verb, the subject receives the action. So when you're problem solving, when you're dealing with the problems of sin in your life, the priority goes to that which is active, not which is passive in terms of a command. A passive command means that you receive something. An active command means you do something. So the first thing we do is we confess sin. The next thing we do is start walking, taking steps in, by means of God the Holy Spirit. The passive side of that command is as we fulfill the active side of walking, we will be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that distinction? When we're taking the active steps, responding to the active voice imperative, then we, are, we receive because it's a, the filling of the Spirit is a passive thing. We're not we're active only in the sense that we are receptive to something. But the active command is to walk, to walk, to take those steps, step by step by step. So let me remind you, confession doesn't get you anywhere but back in the game. But to go forward, to advance spiritually, you respond to the active voice imperative, which means to walk. As you are walking, because you are in fellowship, you will receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we'll explain that in a little more detail in just a minute. So the word walking, peripateo, has the idea most, in most passages of the physical act of walking, such as in Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, which relates to the healing of the lame man. But the word here is used metaphorically. Now, think about what it means to walk. When you think back to when you learned to walk or you think back when your kids learned to walk and you watch them, it involved a lot of thought. It involved concentration. As you developed some skill at it, it related to discipline and regular practice. And before long, because you practiced it on a consistent basis, you no longer had to think about it. When you expand this out to and relate it to the skills in other areas of life, you realize that what part of what was involved in that, even though it occurred when you were two or three years of age, was training. You're training your muscles a certain way so that before long it is a non-conscious activity. You don't ever think about it anymore. You just, you're going to get up and you walk and you just do it. It comes automatically. But it only comes automatically because the process was ingrained in you. But if you were involved in an automobile accident where there was some neurological damage, you'd have to learn to walk all over again. Or if you reach a certain age, then all of a sudden walking becomes difficult. Perhaps you have hip replacement, knee replacement, surgery, whatever it may be, and suddenly you have to walk with a walker. And now walking again becomes a matter of thought and concentration. First time this really hit me occurred about five or six years ago. I was invited to come to a church in Poughkeepsie, New York, and to teach on the spiritual life. And I was going to teach on Galatians 5.16 that night, and I was thinking about how to present this and how to illustrate it. And I went, left my hotel room, went down to the elevator, and took the elevator down to the first floor. And when the elevator doors opened... I was confronted with the fact that there was some sort of, of senior uh, convention there that particular night, and there were 50 gray and white-haired men and women walking past the elevator on their walkers. I couldn't get out of the elevator. I just had to, to stand there with the door open, but I'm watching each of these people go by with their little walkers. And I'm thinking, walk by means of the Spirit. Hmm, there's something here that the Lord's got me uh, focused on. They had to think about each step. That walker was the means by which they walked, same as the Holy Spirit is the means by which we advance. And as I watched them, I said, that walker, which is the means of their forward momentum, is something that they're totally dependent upon. They're leaning upon that. They, they can't go forward at all on their own efforts. They are totally dependent on that walker for 
strength for stability and to be able to go forward. And that's the illustration of this grammatical phrase here in the Greek, walking by means of the Spirit. We're dependent on the Spirit. We have to concentrate on the Spirit. As long as we're thinking about that, there's forward momentum. But as soon as we forget, we're going to stumble and we'll stop and there'll be a reversal because we'll instantly fall back on the flesh. The flesh is the, is the default mechanism for the human heart. As long as we're concentrating on the Holy Spirit, we can go forward. But the instant we relax and quit thinking about it, quit concentrating on it, quit thinking, I need to apply doctrine to this situation, I need to live my life dependent on the Spirit, as long as that's not the framework, we'll instantly uh, default to a sin nature position. Now, as we do this, we develop a skill. Now, there's all kinds of skills in life, and, and the bedrock to developing a skill is discipline. Now, I don't know what kind of background you had growing up. Some of you were in homes or situations where you played sports when you were a kid. Others of you were involved in music. Some of you in theater. Others of you in dance. But all of these different things involved discipline. They involved practice. They involved developing skills. Uh, when I grew up, I took piano lessons a couple of times every week, and my mother made sure that I practiced the piano for 30 minutes every single morning. And whether it involved playing the, the piece that I was learning or whether it involved just playing uh, keyboard technique, it was all designed to develop muscle memory and discipline and skills so that I could improve in my piano playing. Same thing happened later on when I was in junior high and high school. I played trombone in the band. And I'd have to go in two or three times a week, and we'd just go in and play technique over and over again. Nothing to my mind was more boring than playing the exercises in the technique book. There's no melody there's nothing, you know what that's like, or if you're playing sports. I remember playing different sports, and you've got to get out there and just practice certain techniques. If you played football, you had to learn blocking techniques and running techniques and, and all of these different kinds of things. If it's dance, you have to learn uh, other techniques, but it's practice, 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 and that's how the spiritual life operates. We have these different spiritual skills that we're going to learn about, but what happens is that you have to practice them when you get in a position of adversity. When you fail and you start sinning, mental attitude sins or overt sins or whatever it is, then you have to confess. You have to practice that over and over and over again. And some of us do it three or 4,000 times a day, but it's practice. And you just think, okay, I've got to get back in fellowship. And if you're in a really difficult situation where you're tempted to, to worry or to have... Uh, anxiety, and that's your, the, the weakness of your sin nature, then every 30 seconds you have to say, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm worrying again, I'm, I'm fearful again, or, oh, there I am gossiping again, or whatever it may be. Then we just pract we practice that over and over again. Sometimes it just feels like that's all we do. But that's how growth takes place. There's skills that we develop as time goes by, and we develop and it trains us to think about life and to think about those habit patterns and to think about facing adversity from a biblical viewpoint and not just to think of it in terms of this is another rotten situation in life that somehow I've got to get through, and if it doesn't kill me, then it'll make me stronger. It's the idea that, that I've got to face this and handle this through the doctrine that the Lord's given me in His Word and through the Holy Spirit who indwells me, who has filled me with this doctrine, and who's using it to produce spiritual growth. And if I'm not engaged in the process of applying it, then the Holy Spirit won't be engaged in the process of making me stronger. Your application doesn't make you stronger, but your application gives the Holy Spirit the tools that He uses to build that strength and to build endurance. James 1 through four. So the physical act of walking becomes the metaphor for the Christian life, and we have various passages that utilize this. Second Corinthians five seven, we walk by means of faith and not by sight. That is faith directed to the principles of the Word of God. It's not faith in faith, this isn't mysticism. 
It is faith directed to the principles and promises and procedures that are outlined in the Word of God. Colossians 2.6 gives us an analogy to salvation. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Christ? You believed a promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It wasn't just faith in faith. It was faith in a particular revealed promise that God gave related to salvation. So in the same way, we advance in the spiritual life by believing the promises of God and implementing them in our life. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The first part of that describes what happened at the instant of salvation. We were baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, which means we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that the power of the sin nature was broken at that point. The result is that we should walk in newness of life. Again, it's optional. It depends on whether or not you are going to engage your volition to get in fellowship, walk by means of the Spirit, and apply the principles of God's Word. Romans 8.4 That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, we have that contrast. Every instant in our life, you're walking either according to the sin nature or according to the Holy Spirit, one or the other. So we have to determine that. When we're walking by the Spirit, we cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. But as soon as we quit that focus of dependence on the Holy Spirit, the walking by means of the flesh kicks in as the default position of the soul, and we start going backwards. So we have to then utilize 1 John 1, 9, get back in fellowship, start applying doctrine. Ephesians 4.17, This I say therefore in testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? Well, some of them are immoral, but others of them are moral. Just think of some of the folks who are members of cults. Now, Mormonism, as you know, is a cult, but they don't know that anymore. And there's a recent article, a cover story in Newsweek magazine that identifies Mormonism as just another Christian denomination. I hope you all are smart enough not to fall for that. Uh, it's just a, a perversion of idolatry and just another one of these Gentile pagan morality religions. And there's a lot of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and many other religious people who are very upright moral. They have tremendous integrity and honor, and sometimes it far surpasses that that you find among Christians. But the mechanism by which they live their life, that is what they're walking by, has no eternal value whatsoever. It's not spiritual. It's just their own flesh, their own sin nature. And so Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles, even the good moral Gentiles. Uh, that's just emptiness. We have to walk in the light. For you once were darkness, he says in Ephesians 5.8, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And that describes our new position in Jesus Christ. We are children of light. And God has given us His Spirit, and we are to walk by means of His Spirit. In fact, the results of walking as a child of light, given in Ephesians 5.9, are identical to the fruit of the Spirit, given in Galatians 5.22 and 23. Now we go back to Galatians 5 to wrap up. After Paul gives the command to walk by means of the Spirit, he then says, which gives us an idea of what it means to walk by the Spirit, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, and it's a first-class condition indicating that, yes, you are, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So there's a contrast between the Spirit and the law, and the law lines up with the flesh, but being led by the Spirit lines up with the truth of God's Word and living walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit. But how are you led by the Spirit? So you have some folks who come along and they say, well, you just have to get inside. You have to, you have to think about it and you have to feel the Holy Spirit. Well, how objective is that? How do you know it's the Spirit? How do you know it's not just liver quiver? How do you know you just didn't have you know, too, too, too many jalapenos on your, on your burrito at lunch? How do you know it's the Holy Spirit and not just your emotions? Well, you don't. 
there has to be some sort of objective criteria. Now remember, when Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Now what is God's word? It is the objective revelation of God. Let's plug that into the concept of walking and leading. If I'm being led somewhere, there's somebody in front of me who is giving me a clear path to follow. I don't have to guess. I don't have to wonder, whether well, does he want me to go this way or that way? If I'm being led by somebody, if they're doing their job, then they're laying out a clear path. You, you know what I'm talking about. You've gotten on the freeway before. Some, you've got to follow somebody to a restaurant or to somebody's house, and they don't know how to lead at all. And you get behind them, and 15 seconds later, they've allowed six cars to get in front of you, and they've made a right turn, and you're in the left-hand lane, and you have no clue where to go now. Then there are other people who know how to lead, and they make sure that if you, some car gets between you and them, that they slow down so that other car gets frustrated and goes around them. They turn on their uh, direction signal a quarter of a mile before they make the turn to make sure you understand that you have to be in that lane and make a turn. They lead you. There is clear, uh, clear information, objective information on where you're supposed to go. Now, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit reveals His Word to us. It's been inscripturated through the prophets and the apostles so that the path the Holy Spirit is leading us down is not some subjective path related to our feelings, but it is the clear trail established in the Scriptures, the prohibitions and imperatives of the Word of God. So if you are led by the Spirit, and you are because He's laid the path down in front of you, you're not under the law. And then we go through several verses that contrast the flesh and the Spirit and their ultimate production. And in the conclusion, in verse 25, Paul says, But if, again it's a first class condition, if and it's true, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So in the previous verse, he said, if we're uh, led by the Spirit, we're not under the law. If, and as a believer, we are led, first class condition, if and it's true. You are led by the Spirit. We're all led by the Spirit. And here it says, if we live by the Spirit. What does that describe? It describes regeneration, if we live by the Spirit. Yes, that's true for every one of us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were regenerated by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. So if you live by the Spirit, that is, if you are a believer, he then says, let us walk by the Spirit, or we all should or must live by the Spirit. It's a third-person imperative. We don't have that in English. So I, I try to translate a little stronger. We must also walk by the Spirit. And here there's a different word for walking. It's not peripateo, which em emphasizes that step-by-step -step process of dependence. It's the Greek verb stoikeo. And stoikeo was a military term. And it means to stand in order to advance in rows or in ranks. But in the New Testament, it's used figuratively to mean to walk in an orderly manner according to some external rule or direction. Now, what's that external rule or direction? It's the Word of God. It is the clear, objective guidance given from the Word of God. So if we live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, and that word for walking by the Spirit here emphasizes following an exter external guideline that is objective, knowable, and understandable. That is the rule by which we live, following the prohibitions and the positive imp uh, imperatives and mandates of the Word of God. So this is the first skill that we have to develop and that is to follow the leading of the Spirit through the Word of God. Now, I'm going to briefly tie this together because these passages, or at least this passage, is familiar to most of you. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And that is a primary mandate related to the Christian life. But if you look at the verses that follow, 
In verses 19 and following, we learn of these, these results of the filling of the Spirit, or literally to be filled by means of the Spirit. Verse 19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Verse 20 focuses on giving thanks. Verse 21, submitting to one another. Uh, Verse uh, 22 focuses on wives submitting to your husbands. Uh, Verse uh, 25, husbands loving your wives. And then into chapter 6, children obeying your parents and fathers raising up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That flows from fulfilling the mandate of Ephesians 5.18. So you have a clear command to be filled by means of the Spirit. Now, the thrust of the Greek there is to be filled by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is the means of filling, not the content of the filling. It's not what's filled up with. If I had a cup up here and and I said, fill that with coffee, I would be talking about the content of what you're going to put into the cup. That's not what this grammar refers to. It's not talking about filling you up with more of the Spirit. You've got all the Spirit you're going to get at the instant of salvation. But you're now being filled up with something by means of the Spirit. So what are you being filled up with? Well, then we have to go to a parallel passage in Colossians 3. So you just skip over Ephesians. You have Ephesians, then Philippians, uh, then Colossians. In Colossians 3, verse 16, we have another command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the command. Not be filled with the Spirit, but let the Word of Christ dwell in you. What is the result? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Didn't we just read that that's a result of being filled by the Spirit? Yeah, we did. Then it goes on to say that in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks. Wasn't that a result of the filling of the Spirit? Yes. Then in verse 18, Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives. Verse 20, Children, obey your parents. Verse 21, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. In other words, you have this series of, of results given in verses 16b down through 25 that flow from letting the Word of Christ dwell in you. They're the same results that you have in, Colot- in, in Galatia, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 19 and following. So if the filling by the Spirit produces this set of results, and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you produces the same set of results, then being filled by means of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you both produce the same thing. That means those two things must be related to one another. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't let the Word of Christ dwell in you apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't work independently of letting the Word of God dwell in you. The Spirit of God and the Word of God work together to produce growth in your life. It's not one or the other. But they are the two that come together. It is the Spirit that produces the growth in your life. But ultimately, it's your volition that determines whether you're rightly related to the Holy Spirit or not. So that when you're rightly related to the Holy Spirit, you are walking by means of the Holy Spirit. As you walk by the Spirit, you will be learning the Word of God. He will be filling your soul with the Word of God. And He will then be using the Word of God in and through your application to produce spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So what's the key? The key is staying in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. That begins by confessing your sin whenever you sin. But it doesn't end there. It's not just a matter of saying, God, I just, uh, I've been worrying, I've been fearful, I've been uh, vindictive, whatever the sins may be, I've been gossiping, I've been slandering, and then that's it. Once you confess your sin, the issue is to stay in fellowship, to keep walking. Jesus used the phrase, abide in me. It's not just a matter of making sure you're back in fellowship. It's a matter of staying in fellowship, walking by means of the Holy Spirit. So that 1 John 1, 9 isn't an end in itself. It's just a means of recovery so you can keep going forward. 
And when you're an infant, when you're a spiritual baby, sometimes you just you're in and out, you're in and out. You're you're first you're you, you confess, and then you're back in fellowship, and then you sin, and and we've all gone through that. But the the goal is to stay in fellowship, to abide in Christ, to walk by means of the Spirit, and it's when we're in right relationship to the Spirit that God the Holy Spirit produces the growth that takes us to maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to try to understand how these passages fit together, basic dynamics of the spiritual life, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes your word and produces growth, that he is the one who uses your word, that reminds us of what we've learned, that stores it in our soul, and then when we apply it, he takes that application and he produces strength and endurance and growth in our lives. It's not on the basis of who we are or what we've done. It's not simply a matter of confessing our sin. It is a matter of staying in fellowship, applying your word, and moving forward in our Christian growth. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.